when we sold the company, someone asked me like, did you think this would happen? I was like, well, yeah, my name's Timothy Amu and I basically discovered the magical world of business. Are you telling me that there's a world in which guys are just typing on keyboards and making millions? I want that life. I don't believe in follow your passion. 17, yeah. live in fourth floor council estate. Somebody says we'd like to buy you 110 grand. How does nobody else know this? Your mind changes when you realize what is possible. I appreciate the knowledge, but let's get to the nitty gritty of yeah, how let's you get actually, to the money. How much did you sell the company for? <laughs> So Tim, before we get started, just tell me some fun, interesting facts about yourself that not many people know. Not many people know. Mm. Um, I am learning to swim. Yeah. You, what, you don't have to swim? No. Um, Wait, just, okay, so I need yeah. to dissect that. How, how old are you, bro? I just turned 29. And you didn't know how to swim before that? No. And actually, another fun fact, I just passed my driving test six months ago. What? Where have you been for the last 28 years, bro? I've been working. I've been building wealth, my guy. Yeah. Um, and I just passed my test six months ago. And actually, yesterday, I just got my car. Is it? What car did you buy? I got a uh, Tesla. Oh, my God. Like, uh, wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. I understand you're a tech yeah, guy, but it doesn't mean yeah. you need to get a Tesla, bro. No, I got a <laughs> Tesla Model Y wrapped in like matte black. Sick. But yeah, you know, just have to do it nice. Are you a Tesla fan? I am a Tesla fan. To be honest... Tesla has done very well for me from a stock perspective. Yeah. My co-founder actually, so my old co-founder actually made a lot of money from just buying Tesla stock. Mm. And I came in like late in the game, but uh, yeah, Tesla's been good to me. Have you seen the latest Cybertruck that they've got to offer? I've seen it. Yeah, it's some, amazing. Something you're on your cards? I was actually saying to my friend that um, once I'm done with this car, I will get the Cybertruck next, so you know not bad not bad but i'm still surprised <laughs> about the swimming thing i'm still surprised about that but hey do you know what it's because i never did swimming lessons yeah i just i just never crossed my mind so now i'm doing it <laughs> Fez, we'll, we'll get into that in a minute yeah but look tim you've been in the office in my studio in my presence for about 10 minutes right whenever i meet people i always try to analyze them and not analyze them but kind of like understand how they are and you're a very intriguing guy bro like you intrigue me a lot okay like that's good. literally within the first 30 seconds of meeting you it was questions asked to me directly, <laughs> which I found was very fascinating because when I meet guests, it's always like, how are you doing? How's your journey here? All that sort of stuff. First question was, so where do you see the vision of CEO? I'm like, yo, man's onto it from the get-go. So what do you think that says about that you funny. as yourself as a character? <laughs> what a great first question. Um, I think it says I'm pretty direct. I'm pretty no fluff. Mm -hmm. But also I really believe that like everyone can help every other person right and so for me when i see the kind of business you're building and the empire that you're building i'm like well there are a few things that perhaps i could contribute to it in terms of like insight and knowledge so that that kind of framework has been something that's always helped me throughout my life before we go anywhere and get into this episode i need to ask you all to please press subscribe if you've watched this podcast in the past or you're watching this episode now and you've enjoyed it at any point please press subscribe as it helps more than you can imagine. A small action on your behalf that can have such a huge impact. So join the fellow CEO community and I want to thank you all for subscribing and all for showing your love and support. So just a quick introduction to you, who you are yeah. for people who are watching and may not know who you are. Yeah. How would you introduce yourself in the best way possible? How do I introduce myself? So my name is Timothy Yamu. Um, I was born in Hackney. I went to live in Ghana for 10 years. I came back here when I was uh, 11 and I basically discovered the magical world of business. 
business. <laughs> at 14, I started my first company. At 17, I started my second, which was sold. And then at 21, I started a company called Fanbytes, which was an influencer marketing agency, which I ran for six years. And at 27, we sold it for tens of millions. Okay, so you basically just summarized the whole podcast. Done. <laughs> but, now done. everybody podcast can leave. Done. Peace. <laughs> <laughs> no, but look, let's, let's dissect that. So yeah. you mentioned there you went back to Ghana for 10 yeah. years, right? Yeah. So... This was when you were one years old, you said? Like six months or so. Six yeah, months. Yeah, like super, so, super early. So your parents, what, you went back to Ghana with your parents? or No, so I went to live with my grandma. And actually, the story is because my parents basically couldn't really see eye to eye. And so it was either go to Ghana or go to foster care. Mm. And so they decided that actually to live with my grandmother was a better decision. And what was life like in Ghana? Life was actually pretty chill. My grandma was actually pretty, like, high up, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and so life was very, very chill. I think the kind of discipline and structure that Ghana gave me, even though it was ages, ages ago, I still live with that level of discipline and structure now. Yeah. Do you know, it's, it's interesting because Ghanaian people, I've got a lot of Ghanaian friends and we yeah. always, I'm Pakistani myself, so we, it's like a lot of our, our morals from our ethnicity kind of are aligned and very yeah. similar in that way. Yeah. Um, kind of like, you know, ethnic backgrounds, they always have the same sort of morality. Yeah. I think it's quite interesting. So I can kind of imagine how, you know, your upbringing in Ghana was. So yeah, that's quite interesting. What was school life like in Ghana? School was good. I think one of the biggest things that Ghana gave me was this feeling of being the smart person. So when I came from Ghana to here, and I don't know if this is just like a Ghanaian thing, but so many of the things that we learned in year six here, mm-hmm. we had learned in Ghana in like year three or four. Okay, so they're basically ahead. Yeah, way ahead. And yeah. so like, because of that, when I came here, like we're learning things. I'm like, how does nobody else know this? <laughs> but I think because of that, it gave me this feeling of thinking, you know what, I'm a smart person. And because of that, like, because I like believed I was a smart person, I acted like a smart person and then people related to me as a smart person. So then I got better grades because like I was meant to get better grades. You know what I mean? It was almost like manifestation. Exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's like, what's it? There's that study about how um, um, if you tell kids between the ages of like two to seven and you eat, and you tell them like, you are strong, you are determined eventually like 30 years down the line they end up becoming people who are mentally strong so i mm. think there's that kind of like subtle manifestation there yeah i think it's yeah it's also depending on your upbringing and stuff i i agree with you i think if you you know if you're i feel like if people are kind of soft not soft on the children how do i word this in the right way <laughs> it's like cancel soft. <laughs> it's like if you're if you're soft on the children and and you let them just do what you want all that sort of stuff I kind of you can see it in the way that they're brought up 100%. as an adult 100%. but I think as you said if you tell your son or your daughter that you're strong you got this and all that sort of stuff eventually mm. you become that person where it builds you into that character 100%. which is which is interesting so when you came back to school in the UK actually yeah. before I even get there growing up with your grandma for 10 years then yeah. obviously you would have built a solid solid connection there with her yeah right? uh, I don't know if I'd say that really so how, how would it have been if you can describe it in, in the best of ways. That's a great question. Um, so I think I always knew that the plan was to come back to England. Like mm-hmm. I always knew that was the plan. Yeah. Were, were you still in contact with your parents? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So my mum, for example, here's a really funny story. Um, 
Whilst I was in Ghana, my mum was a big believer in books. So she'd actually send me books from England to Ghana for me to read. And then she'd call me like once every week to basically do book summaries. Okay, sick. Um, when I came to England, she used to pay me like, I think it was like 60 pounds mm-hmm. to read a book. So my love of reading also came from her as well. But um, no, I think my relationship with my grandma was pretty chill. It was just like... She was someone who was taking care of me, but I knew it was a transition period to go back. Yeah. So then how was it leaving then? Was it just like numb oh, to you chill. or? Yeah, chill. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I knew my parents were here. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, it's like, well, I'm going to see my parents, right? So yeah. done. Yeah. Did you miss them in that time then? So I think I did miss them. But I think, to be honest, in the back of my mind, I always knew that England had better opportunity than Ghana. Mm-hmm. Even though I was, whatever, eight, nine, ten, I just had this feeling that it had better opportunity. And of course, there were some times that I came on holidays, etc. here. And I always had this feeling of things just seem faster here. Things just seem bigger here. And I really want to go there. Mm-hmm. So when you came back, you came back to Hackney or? No, I lived... Um, Southeast London on Oakent Road. Okay, on okay, okay, near my uni, pretty much. Yeah, I went to Southbank. So oh, well, there you go, literally right around the corner. From Local. There. So what was it like, you know, living there? Um, so this was obviously in like two thousand and five, two thousand six. That was actually like the peak of the beef between you know Peckham, Brixton, <laughs> Oakent. So that was interesting, man. Like that was um, <laughs> that was very interesting because we were you know next to. A bunch of the hotspots and mm-hmm. so there were a few times especially around from october to february when it gets dark quick yeah where basically like 5 a.m you have to sprint <laughs> you have to sprint home um but overall what was so powerful was that i made friends with a lot of the trappers there and they almost saw me always as like this guy is going to make it out through his intellect yeah. and so because of that I was almost the kind of like golden child of it, right? Like in the same way that you see someone who's sick at football and you go, leave him because he'll make it out through football. For me, it was actually leave him because he'll make it out through his brain. Yeah, and, and hopefully so that was through, very, through with him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> interesting though, like some of the friends, well, not friends, some of the people that I knew there, um, they've DM me about something and they've been like, oh, actually, I saw your interview on this thing, blah, blah. And like, because of that, it's helped me to do this. So like, in some way, them not involving me there, I don't know, 10, 12 years later has actually paid back. But it's, it's very interesting at the same time because <clears throat> growing up around those people and being involved in that crowd, it's very easy for someone to get sucked in and kind of live that life. I'm not saying yeah, you're going to be yeah, a full-time yeah, yeah. trapper, but I'm saying like, you can... For example, if one of your mates is a trapper and said, Tim, do you mind dropping this off here and there and all yeah, that sort of yeah, stuff, yeah. you eventually get caught up in the life, caught up in gang life. So how did you actually stay friends with them but avoid that life? So, how did you balance it? Yeah, so I'm going to say something that is going to be somewhat controversial. Okay, I'm ready for it. But I think at that age, I always walked around with a superiority complex. Okay. Like I always walked around thinking I was better than everyone else. I was smarter than everyone else. I was more capable than everyone else. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, I did not deserve to be where I lived. Because remember, at that age, I didn't decide where I lived. It uh, it, It was living with my dad. And I always had this in my mind that, this is just a pit stop. This is just a short path for me to actually get out. 
this was actually one of the reasons why I then chose to go to boarding school. And so I guess to, to the audience, I would say something like, well, that feeling of unease and that feeling of I can do better and I can be better, lean into that because you're not strange for thinking that. Mm. You're not awkward for thinking that because that's going to give you the level of intensity that you need to make sure that you push through. I'm interested to know, what did your dad do for a living? My dad worked for the council. Um, Actually, (laughs) here's a funny story. So for the longest time, I'd see letters coming from like Southwark Home Council, which is where he worked, right? But for like the longest time, I thought that meant that like he owned property. Okay, yeah. Right? I was like, so the home council, I'm like, right. But he was just like basically worked in social care. (laughs) (laughs) But he was a manager in social care. And I find this so funny, like for so many people who come from my background or, you know, people who are like working class people, there's always that like inflection point in their life where they go, oh, rah, I'm poor. Or like, oh, rah, like this person can afford this thing that I can't. And I think for me that happened maybe around like 13, 14. I was like, rah, I can't afford this stuff. I was literally just going (laughs) to say that because thinking about it right now. I've interviewed so many entrepreneurs and it's always like the similar thing that they always find within these entrepreneurs is that they have an understanding for money. Yeah. So your understanding yeah, for money yeah, was that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, my main understanding for money came because I was just made aware of the fact that I didn't need to be really old to earn money. Mm-hmm. Like there was a blog called, um, and I think I've spoken about it before, there was a blog called retire21.com and I used to read that blog every single day because all it did was talk about people young under 21 who basically had made money through online business and i was just like oh my god this is mad like are you telling me that there's a world in which these guys are just typing on keyboards and making millions like i want that life and so i think that exposure and that awareness of something that was possible was definitely a big thing for me what sort of stuff was also on that website because retire at 21 if you're reading at a young age you would have been how old roughly oh so yeah, it's like 13. And I basically kept reading that probably to like 15. Like every day there was a new article. And they talk about some amazing people. Like they talked about this guy called Pete Cashmore who ended up um, founding um, Mashable. They'll talk about this guy called um, Christian Owens who actually is a founder of a company called Paddle, which is a UK business, which I think is worth now like 2 billion or something. But like they were talking about him and his previous company. I was just like, this brother is like just a bit older than me. Yeah. And he's printing money. I want to print money, right? And so, yeah, during that period, it was a very, it was a very major thing for me. What do you think that done to your mindset? Reading blog pages like that at such a young age. So I think it made the impossible seem possible. This is actually one reason why I encourage a lot of early stage entrepreneurs or young people to like almost bury themselves in books because there is something that your mind changes when you realize what is possible. And for so many people and for so many young entrepreneurs, I find that the biggest mistake is they place too much of a hurdle or sorry, they place too much of a pedestal on things that otherwise aren't actually that big. So for example, and I know we'll come to this, when we sold the company, someone asked me like, did you think this would happen? I was like, well, yeah, because in my mind, I was like, well, People who are in their 20s sell their companies for tens of millions of pounds. So if I can, like, if they can do it, why can I do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that sense of, like, <clears throat> everything seems very achievable 
is the first domino to knock down if you want to achieve something significant. I think that's a very, very powerful thing to say, to be fair, because not a lot of people think like that. And I think the mm. second you start thinking like that and believing that the impossible is possible and just, just looking around, around, you know, different entrepreneurs and, all, and seeing what they've done and, and what they've achieved. Like yeah. yourself, for example, you're yeah. still very young. Yeah. And to see, you know, like, not, not even net worth or anything like that, but just see what you've accomplished. Yeah. For someone watching this right now, who may be that 20 year old, it's like, here's Tim as an example. You can do this. Yeah. You can get to that level. But if you don't think like that in the first place, it's going to be very hard to make it happen after. Yeah. Like you have to almost normalize success, right? Like what's that whole thing? Is it Roger Bannister? Mm. Um, he was a famous athlete. Nobody could break the four minute mile run. And then he did it. And then like in the next six months, like eight people had done it. And it's not like those eight people were different people to before he broke it. It was just like, they went, oh, this is possible. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that is that first block that you have to knock down is, okay, this is actually very easy or this is very achievable. And then you act. So you mentioned reading there, right? Yeah. I just want to tell you a little secret. Okay. And I want you to tell me exactly how it is. Your first thought training when I say it. Okay. I don't read. Yeah. I'm astonished. Okay. I don't read. <laughs> However, this is the reason why I started this podcast because I'm over audio person I like listen okay. to people's stories so okay. I could probably listen to an audible I could you know obviously have yeah, this conversation yeah. with you and learn like that so do you think reading itself is the key or learning in general this episode is sponsored by Fireway Pizza, the fastest growing pizza company in the UK. With over 100 locations, you definitely have a store near you. The founder of Fireway was on the show not too long ago, and you can get a slice of the action by using the discount code CEOCAST at fireway.co.uk. Once again, use the discount code CEOCAST at fireway.co.uk. I think learning in general, okay. or perhaps more specifically, consuming positive information, mm -hmm. which can be through audio, it can be through talking with people, it can be through reading. So... Yeah, let's let's underline consuming positive information. Very important. <laughs> so what books would you recommend for people to read that actually uplift your positivity? Okay, so I think there are three... Let me think. Hmm. I don't want to hear the cliche ones as well, by the way, because yeah, yeah, yeah. many times I've heard Think and Grow Rich. Um, that book sucks. <laughs> is it? That book sucks. Okay. And so, uh, Rich yeah. Dad, Poor Dad, another one. That book sucks. Okay, really? So, oh, yeah. You're the first person to... I've, like I said, I don't read, but I know all, all the readers yeah, yeah. I know rate these books. So, I mean, before I tell you my three books that are interesting, the reason why you think and grow rich sucks is because the whole thing was actually a lie. Yeah. So, Napoleon Hill was like a known fraudster and he never actually met Carnegie. Like, mm -hmm. it never happened. The guy was also like a known fraudster. So his whole thing was kind of like, I met this guy and these are the secrets to the world. It's like if... Jeff Bezos died and then you wrote a book saying, I met Jeff Bezos and he said these things. Obviously it was so because people think that you have like the secrets, but it's like just yeah. you just making it up. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. that's the thing. So many people don't actually know this. Um, or even fun story about Richard Poor Dad and people can crucify me for this. Um, Richard Poor Dad didn't actually sell well at the beginning. And do you know why it sold? Because it became part of an MLM. What's that? Like multi-level marketing scheme. Okay. So what happened was if you recruited someone into your network, 
part of the onboarding package was that they gave you a rich dad poor dad book yeah and so that's actually the way that it started to go because the actual book itself didn't sell well because kiyosaki was like again similar to napoleon hill was like known as kind of a bit of a trickster a bit of a financial fraudster and so both of those books are like products of good marketing rather than good substance I suppose on the flip side, it's a good way to sell a product. It's a good way to sell a product. If you want to sell this, put it in a MLM and yeah, then you win. It's like, um, there was a typical example I saw years ago. My mom showed me this, I remember. And it was like, I don't know if it's, I don't even know if this is a true story, but it's a good point. The guy made a book on how to make a million pound and he sold a book for a pound <laughs> and sold it to a million people. And, and it was like, people. there's a million pound right yeah. there. So what would you say off the back of that then? Your That's three funny. books for success. So I think the three books I'll choose for success. Number one, Psycho-Cybernetics. Mm-hmm. That's a very niche book, but to me it's the best book on how to redesign your self-image. The guy was a plastic surgeon and he basically realized that like both of us could go into his surgery. You could have a scar on your face and I could also have a scar on my face. You could actually get treated incredibly well and you'd be like, yes, I'm done. But then I would also get treated incredibly well, but I would walk around still like I've got a scar on my face. Mm. And he basically concluded that like the mind can't tell the difference between like what is real and what's fake. And so if you act as if you are a certain type of person, the mind would just be like, okay, cool. This is who we are now. And so updating your self-image and redesigning your self-image to me is quite a critical thing. Number two, and it's a book that I keep talking about every single time because I'm just like, oh my God, this is amazing. It's a book called The 38 Letters Rockefeller Sent to His Son. This book, I'm so surprised that people don't talk about this. I've book. never heard of this book. Oh, there book. you go. Yeah. Rockefeller, as we know, was like, at the point, the world's richest man. For like centuries, he was literally the world's richest person ever, right? And basically, there are these letters he sent to his son. And nobody could obviously see them until when he died, when they were like taking stuff out of his house, then they saw the letters and then they published those letters. And I've read that book like 15 times now, because basically it's like very in-depth, but again, it's like a mindset book where you kind of go, wow, this is how this person thought about competition and thought about wealth and thought about skills. And, and you just internalize those and you start to like really level up your game. And then, Probably the third one, but that is, again, my take because my whole world has been built from like building and selling companies is a book called Built to Sell. That book is basically, the guy is someone who knows how to sell companies, but he basically writes a story of someone who started an agency and how he went through the building of it, the scaling of it, and the selling of that agency. Those three books, I think, give you the mindset, but also the skills that you need in order to like build something and then eventually sell it at some point. You don't come across like your typical entrepreneur where you made money and all that sort of stuff. You kind of seem like you go against the grains of what <laughs> entrepreneurship is. And, That's you, interesting. And, and you've made it that way, which is a very interesting way to look at it because it kind of breaks the laws of everything that I've been taught and spoken to you about from previous entrepreneurs on this podcast. Interesting. Which is interesting, a different way to, to look at life, I suppose. So how so? Like, how do you mean? As in that I'm not like flashy, like, flashy. No, not even flashy, flashy, but just for example, right there, as you mentioned, the books, you know, most entrepreneurs have had in this podcast who have read, uh, Think and Grow Rich, you know, yeah. these are the greatest books ever that are going to elevate your mind to, you know, for you to be a success. Yeah. And just, as we mentioned, we were talking about this off the podcast as well, just like the way you're intriguing as a person 
you you seem like you've got a very curious personality to find out more about the world yeah or more about someone else so i think it's a yeah very interesting aspect to, to look at but look let's cover through your journey That's because people are probably watching this right now thinking you know what i appreciate the gems i appreciate the knowledge but let's get to the nitty-gritty of yeah, how let's you get actually, to the money yeah let's get to the money let's get to <laughs> Show the money, me the money. <laughs> keep the so, money warm tim yeah. talk me through it bro yeah. when did you f- first start making money I actually first started making money before I did Fanbyte. At 17, I started a company called Entrepreneur Express. Mm-hmm. Before that, I started a tutoring business at 14. But actually, I think the most useful lessons will come from Entrepreneur Express. So Entrepreneur Express was basically like an online blog all about like business and stuff. So remember that I told you I read that um, Retire at 21 thing? Yeah. I was just amazed by business. And so I thought, let me build like a business publication, both like online and offline that I can use and I can run ads to it. I can do all that stuff. But here's the big lesson and the big gem is the way that I drove traffic to that online site was through Facebook pages. Mm -hmm. So at that time, was it 12 years ago? At that time, Facebook pages were, you know, you could post something and go viral and you hit and you hit. So I grew pages around like motivation and inspiration and all that stuff. And I'll take articles from my blog, I'd put in the Facebook page and that would drive traffic back to the to Facebook website. page. So yeah. it was basically like an arbitrage game and it absolutely cleaned up. Yeah. Um, that started making me a good amount of money. And then 11 months later, I ended up getting an email from a US company who was like, yo, do you want to sell the business or do you want to partner up? And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. What does that sound like? And then we get on Skype and then he says, actually, rather than partnering up, we'd like to buy you. I'm like, what? And he says, yeah, we're thinking of like 110 grand. Uh, how old are you at this point? I'm 17. I'm 17, yeah. Live in fourth floor council estate. And then somebody says, for this thing you worked on for like 10, 11 months, here's 110 grand. And I was just like, yo, we about to run this up. Like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Was 110 grand a lot of money to you then? Of course, of course, of course. It, it like... You know, the reason why I asked this, let me say this, the yeah. reason why I asked this is because before this business, as you mentioned, you had a tutoring business, yeah. right? And I watched on another podcast that you mentioned you at one point you had 65 employees. So 65 tutors. 65 tutors. Yes. So that's so, very different, right? Okay. 65 tutors are basically people who basically worked for me, but they could be contracted to other people, but they were contracted to me as tutors. Mm-hmm. That's very different from employees. Okay. Right? Okay. So but point being... Is that you would have made money from that business? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I think so, the tutoring business made me made me personally max like twelve grand or so. Really? Yeah. Okay, I thought it would have been higher than that. No, no, no. Because remember, so I guess we can take a step back. The tutoring business was basically me being the middleman and like connecting people who needed tutoring to people who were tutors. Yeah. And the way I made my money was taking a cut of every single yeah. transaction. Almost like commission-based sort of thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. The reason why that failed very quickly was because when you are in tutoring, if you find a good tutor, there's no reason for you to come back to the source. Mm. You just stick with the tutor that you've actively had. Yeah. And so because of that, what ended up happening was like my cut of the money kept going down because people were just going directly to the tutors. And so the reason why really was like, you know, 12 grand over that period was because it went boom, 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 and then went boom, 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 and then that was it. Was that online or offline? That was offline. Okay, so that was all in person. So literally, I wouldn't have a reason. So for example, if the fellow on my left was my tutor and you were the one that hooked you up, I have no reason to call you Tim. Can you 
line him up to tutor me again, I could just go directly to him. Yeah. Especially if it's offline. Especially if it's offline. And yeah. the only thing that was holding you to me was like your sense of integrity and honesty yeah. on both sides. But if I'm saving myself some money, what in at that age, what does that matter? Exactly. <laughs> as bad as it sounds, it's, it's, exactly. it's, it's a problem. Exactly. Face. And actually that was the prompt that caused me to then just say, I'm just going to start doing online businesses because then I can own more of the ecosystem. I can own more of the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Did you try and tailor the tutoring business to online? No, because at that time, I didn't really have a good sense of like what an online business was, right? Like the way that I got customers was because I was known as the smart guy in school. I just reached out to other kids and I was like, hey, I did well in this maths exam. Do you also want to do well in the maths exam? And like, yeah, okay. Mm. And then I'd go to their parents or they'll tell their parents, oh yeah, there's this person, right? And then eventually what ended up happening was like, we ended up going broad, right? Chemistry, biology, Spanish, all of those things. And I didn't know those things as well. So that was when I was like, cool, let me start finding other people who are good at it. And then I take a cut. Yeah, 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 fair. So going back to Entrepreneur Express then? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So, that was the run. Like, we built that thing. I say we, I, because it was just me. Um, I built that thing, run the Facebook pages, and then, yeah, um, we then we then uh, sold that company. Oh, so you did sell it for the 100 Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. So. Which was just crazy. Like, like. How did it feel? 17 yeah. years old, 110 so, grand in your account. So. That's a lot of money for a 17 year old, bro. I can imagine that first car. I mean, you, you only got your first car, like, last month, like you said. But <laughs> so the thing that I don't know. So sometimes I think about that moment and I think, what would my life have turned out to be if that hadn't happened? Because I think the biggest value that gave to me was evidence that I was someone who could build something and sell something. If that hadn't happened, I don't think fanbites would have happened. And I think for so many young entrepreneurs, I always say your first business, your second business, even your third business shouldn't be the like multi-million huge success. Actually, you should just start a business which gives you enough evidence that you're someone who can achieve some small success. So actually starting the e-com business, which gets you to 50 grand, it's like, wow, you've built an identity of someone who can do 50 grand. So now let's go and do 300 grand. Let's go and do 500 grand. So that baby step of almost doing the 110 grand was like, wow, it has completely changed my life. The funny thing, and I smile at this because obviously with Fanbytes, we ended up doing, you know, huge campaigns, like million pound campaigns, half a million pound campaigns. And now that scale, that's when you realize actually, in hindsight, how small 110 grand was for the buyer. Because mm. the buyer was an agency called Horizon Media. They literally like print millions and millions and millions. And so to basically have like 110 grand to just buy an asset, which made them way more than that, is nothing to them, but it was life-changing for me. Mm-hmm. But still at that time, I was just like, whoa, this is mad. Like 11 months of work, something that I just came up with in my mind and someone's like, yeah, cool. Here's six figures. Go live. I was like, wow. I think naturally as you, how do I word this? As you climb the ladder of success, the definition of success changes. Yeah. So for example, at 17 years old, 110 grand is like massive. Yeah. Cool. Maybe at 23, 500 grand. Yeah. Oh, wow. This is better now. 28. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're talking millions. Yeah. Even, even better. Yeah. And the question I have off the back is before we continue it is, you know, creating that business in the beginning, was it initially in your head to sell it at all? 
Creating Entrepreneur Express, the vision wasn't to sell it, but creating fan base, the vision was. Okay. Yeah. So the vision was to sell it. So I always have this question nowadays as well, because I just come off the back of the podcast with Simon Skib. You yeah, may have yeah. seen it. Yeah. Familiar with him? Yeah. Yeah. yeah? Love Simon. And, and he's a great entrepreneur. Another one example who sold a business um, to, you know, PwC. And so since that podcast, I started asking myself kind of like, what businesses that I could make that's exitable and that's sellable? Yeah, yeah. And how do you actually think of the idea to create a business that's sellable? Because anyone can make a business, yeah. but not everyone can make a business that's exitable. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. what's the execution strategies for that? Yeah. So I think for this, I'd have to talk more about fan bites. Okay. Because yeah. I think there I was very intentional, right? So, um, How do you build a business that is sellable? So I think there's three main parts to this. Number one, the best businesses are those where you know there's going to be consolidation later on. So for example, I intentionally picked Fanbyte as a business because I was like, oh, this influencer wave is riding and riding and riding. What we're going to do is ride the wave until the point where there's going to be some kind of mergers and acquisitions and everything going on in the industry. And then at that point, we will get off. So mm-hmm. I think it's very important for you to almost build with the exit in mind to know when the industry is going to be consolidated. So you have to like build where things are growing and things are scaling. Second thing is that you have to build something that is of significant value to someone else. So often you get a lot of entrepreneurs start businesses, which are like just really profitable businesses for themselves. But, uh, but another organization or another big company is not of value to them because it just relies on them. And so this was the reason why with Fanbyte, we got the company up to like 80 people, but we had a lot of technology in place, which was allowing us to scale. If we didn't have that technology in place, and if we didn't think about like the people part of it, it would just have been like me and a few people just still making a lot of profit, Mm. but it's just not something that can be sold on. And then the third thing would then be like systems, man. I mean... I see so many entrepreneurs who have great businesses, but they don't have systems. And systems just mean whether it's through people, whether it's through software, whether it's through IP, whether it's through brand, is something ticking over whilst you're sleeping. And those like three things, you really want to be able to nail them if you then want to end up building something that can be sold. Guys, hold on. Before you think this is a sponsor, it's really not, and I'll keep this short and sweet for you. I finally put a CEO cast community together over on Discord. This is a place for you guys to network with one another and also do deals. As well as that, I'm inviting people from the community to watch the podcast here live in person. You also get to know who's on the podcast next and leave your questions for them. We're making a community right now that can elevate all of our lives. So if this sounds of interest to you, I ask you to please join the community. The link is in the description and I'll see you over there. What do you consider as an entrepreneur? And the reason why I ask is because Mm. in lockdown and the year following that, I had DMs nothing but, hey, I'm an entrepreneur. Hey, I'm an entrepreneur. Da, 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 da. So by definition, interesting. by definition, the word entrepreneur just means someone who starts a business, someone who takes yeah. a risk to start the business. Yeah. But I saw it as people just see cool people like Gary Vee who say yeah, they're an yeah, entrepreneur yeah, yeah. and now they're suddenly this figure. So yeah. what is your take on that? That's so interesting. Um, So I think there's a difference between being an entrepreneur and a business owner. I think a business owner literally owns a cash flowing asset, which 
uses their expertise and their skill sets. An entrepreneur builds a machine which can live independent of them and which can scale independent of them, Mm -hmm. which at some point can be sold. I think those two things are very important. Not every business owner is an entrepreneur, but every entrepreneur is a business owner. That's a very, very, very interesting way to put it and a very valid way to put it as well. Yeah, I like that. I like that as well. I'm going to move on to fan bites here. Actually, before I do, I had a question for you. Yeah, hit me. There's that cliche saying that failure, failure, like more failure over time leads to success. Mm. You agree with that? (laughs) As I said, you're that, that guy that kind of goes against the grain. So interesting to hear your take on it. Because your yeah. first business, pretty much a success. And businesses following that have been a success. Have you had failures on the way? I've had a lot of failures. Yeah. But I just don't talk about them. Okay, can we talk about it on the podcast? Yeah, yeah we can. So, um, <laughs> so one time I tried to build an affiliate site for dentists. Mm-hmm. That failed. Why did it fail? It failed because it wasn't really fulfilling any market demand. Mm-hmm. It was just something I thought was interesting. It didn't slap. After I sold Entrepreneur Express, uh, after I sold Entrepreneur Express, I wasted about thirty grand on spread betting because I thought I had the Midas touch and I could do everything. That failed. I started a number of e-com things before Fanbytes. Those failed. So I've had a lot of failures, but I don't talk about them, not because I'm embarrassed, but almost because they just don't even come into my mind. I'm like, oh yeah, try that, didn't flop. Anyway, on to the next thing, right? So I think you want to have that, they want to have that sort of personality where you're almost like a duck and failure just hits you like water and like, oh, okay, that worked, that didn't work, etc. Yeah. That's an interesting way to put it. Because I, I do think people do dwell on failure and negativity too much. And yeah. it doesn't let them progress in life yeah. into other different things. But if you just accept the failure, fair enough, in that case, you know, maybe a 30 grand loss or something like that. Yeah. But if you just move on and forget, not forget about it, but learn from it, yeah, then you'll be better off like that. Yeah, because the thing is, man, like, <sighs> if you internalize that business is a skill, and as with any skill, you get better the more that you do it. Then that therefore means your first and second business are meant to fail because you don't know the skill of how to be good at business. Mm. It's like, I'm learning to swim now. The first times I got in the pool, I couldn't even breathe underwater. <laughs> All those that I, stuff, I don't right? think you're, you can naturally breathe underwater. Yeah, anyways. I, don't, well, know, I yeah. don't know what you're doing there. <laughs> I couldn't hold my breath underwater. There you go, right? And then it was like, oh, okay, this is what you do. This is what you're meant to do. And then by lesson six, I'm like, oh, I can float now, right? And now I can do all these things progressively. So if you think about business as a skill, and you think about a skill that you get better over time with repetition, then you're meant to fail, then you're meant to learn from those failures, and then you're meant to then scale up afterwards. Mm, interested. How old did you when you started Fan Bites? I was 21. So like you said, you started with, with the ideology of, you know, being able to sell that business in the future. So what was, when you created this business, what yeah. was the actual purpose? What was the, when you put it on pen to paper as a business plan, what was your goal that you're trying to achieve? Yeah. So here's a really funny story. Fanbytes actually started from a failure. So my co-founder and I had tried to build this company called Banzi, which was basically connecting music artists with their fans. Mm-hmm. 
But that failed because you realized that weren't actually fulfilling any true market demand. And then on one night, we saw this YouTuber called Jake West and we thought, hmm, Jake West was a songwriter and also a YouTuber. Let's see if we can do a campaign with him where he can engage his fans in some way. And that campaign was the first time that people actually started buying our stuff. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. The influencers are the ones who have the power. When you say the buying your stuff, what stuff? So JQuest would do things like, if you buy my t-shirt, you enter in with a raffle to enter a competition to win an experience with me. Okay. Right? Okay. And we tried that with bands and artists and no one really took it. It was a YouTuber who actually made it work. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. This YouTuber thing is where the pocket is. And then we did it with this other girl called Kira Rose. And the and the experience was for people to go to Go Ape with her. One of her fans to go to Go Ape with her. And so to do that, I then called up Go Ape. And I was like, hey, Kira Rose is coming. Could we get like a free thing? Then he said, oh, what's your price? And it's like at that moment, I went, oh, he's seen this as marketing. Like this to him is marketing go away through these YouTubers. Yeah, there's money coming out of their pocket. Yeah, and I was like, oh, the YouTubers aren't our customers. The brands are the customers because they are trying to tap into this wave that is happening with influencers. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously they're seeing it as well. Exactly. So we're like, this whole business should just 180 and actually be about helping brands tap into those influencers and then when I discovered that and when I determined that, I was like, cool, this is the opportunity. And that was when then we researched into the opportunity. I was like, oh, okay. This is like when TV had its wave or when radio had its wave where it was like, it starts off small and then it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And the people who were leading in that pack eventually ended up being rich in that way. What do you think was different about Bites as compared to any of your competitors? Because I can't sit here and say that Fanbytes was the only company yeah, at yeah. that time doing, doing that. So know? I think Fanbytes succeeded because of three things. Number one, positioning. We focused on being a Gen Z expert. And so because of that, you could go to a bunch of other people, but if you wanted to reach Gen Z, you'd come to Fanbytes. Number two, we were very aggressive in like overly promoting. So whilst I was running Fanbytes, we did things like the Byte House, where we got six TikTokers to come and live in a house and create content. We basically stole the idea from Hype House in the US, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? We created things like the Fanbytes Fund, which was a fund dedicated to fund influencer campaigns for Black-owned businesses. Basically, like every month, there was some reason why Fanbytes was in the news. And so because of that, the like perception of Fanbytes was just, oh my God, these guys are everywhere. And I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, this is actually quite a good skill, which is how can you create constant noise about yourself every single time? And then the third thing was like, we had a very good combination of both like services, but also technology. So we weren't just like a services business, but we built software, which meant that like from one central point, we could activate campaigns in like UK, US, Australia, Mexico, Af like everywhere, right? And so because of that, brands were like, if we want to reach Gen Z globally, actually fanbytes are the best people for that. So I think those three things were big differentiators. Why was you targeting Gen Z out of everyone? <laughs> um, was it just because they're the up and coming they're the new ones that people are connecting with as yeah. in what so, was it yeah so this is okay cool this is a business lesson for all your viewers in here which is 
at the beginning, you really want to have some kind of competitive advantage. And the way you want to have some competitive advantage is A, what is missing in the market? And B, what is credible to you? So the first bit about what is missing in the market, everyone was just like an influencer marketing agency. So there was missing that focus on Gen Z. And then B, credibility. Because we started it young, because we were start of, uh, sorry, because we we're part of Gen Z, because of that, when we go into a meeting with a brand and we say, we are Gen Z, we can help you tap into Gen Z, boom. Sign. We are your target audience. Basically. We are your target audience and we're trying to run the play for you yeah. to target more of us. It's like, well, duh, I'm not going to give my money to some like 40-year-old white man. I'd yeah. rather give it to this like 24-year-old Who people. understands us better than us. Boom. Exactly. exactly. That makes exactly. sense. Scaling like that is one thing. But how did you actually obtain and attract customers to Fanbytes in the first place? So at the beginning... Can you remember your first customer? Yeah, our first customer was GoApe. Is it? Okay, oh, off the yeah. bat. Yeah. Off the Spent phone. £300 yep. with us. And I remember that £300 was basically £3 million Yeah. <laughs> because it was like, wow, okay, if I feel like this is working. And if this is working, then that means there's more people that we can have. Mm-hmm. So how we attracted first customers was at the beginning, we just hustled and we focused on a very specific niche right we focused on music labels and we said we're going to go to these labels and we're going to charge them very very cheap because we just want the case studies and here is a very very tactical thing for entrepreneurs to do you want to pick a specific niche where it's very easy for you to reference other customers so for example if we sign on Sony or we sign on a sub-label in Sony, then that gives us incredible opportunity to then go sign a sub-label in Warner mm-hmm. because Warner don't want to lose to Sony. And then what happens, because you've got Sony and Warner, what happens is Universal basically come to you because they're like, what the heck? These guys are all working with this person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So very tactically, how we got customers was that we focused on a niche which had a lot of reference customers. And then we just went in and we just like, all right, Sony, boom, done i think the first campaign with a label in sony was like i don't know a grand and then we went to warner and we said oh yeah that was like 10 grand <laughs> and, then, and, then to, and, and then it just kept going it, higher and yeah, higher it's higher. almost like it's, it's funny because it's almost like the companies themselves are fighting amongst each other yes yeah yeah, but yeah. you're the one benefiting it in yeah, the end run <laughs> exactly what you always want especially at the beginning is to just focus on that sort of segment where it's very easy to then get the future people and then what we then ended up doing was once we had nailed music, then we just did the same thing in apps. Then we just did the same thing in fashion. And then what ended up happening was like people would just come to us because like we become known as like the apps people, the fashion people. And I remember having so many arguments with my team where they were like, oh, can we expand, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, no, focus, 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 focus. So just doing that from a very tactical level, if you... If you're listening, you run some kind of like agency or something like that, I will go, all right, you should get a sheet of paper. You should say, what is my niche? And then in that, you should say, what is my niche inside of my niche? Because those are the people who are going to easily refer you other customers. And those are the way that you're going to grow from there. I want to learn from this personally right now. yeah, Yeah, hit me. Because we talk, we spoke about this before the podcast even started. You even, you said you asked me about brand deals and all that sort of stuff, yeah. how the money comes in, and you were saying to me you're surprised that there's no other brands that are more affiliated with business that you know sponsor, for example, fintech and all that yeah, sort of yeah. stuff. So my question off the big back of this is how what's the actual strategy to actually go around and approach these companies? Yeah. Who do you approach? When do you approach them? Is there a specific time yeah. for it? 
and what's the actual exact ruling because also as well i do have a vision to maybe as is we're in we're in a world right now where there's an influx of podcasts yeah so how can i be the one to monetize off of all of that yeah and maybe similar to fan bites connecting the brands to the podcast yeah you know so i want to know almost like an in-depth business strategy if cool. you want to set this up right now okay yeah. cool so how do we build out the revenue model for ceo cars so the first thing i would do is i would try and deeply identify who my target customer is so give me a sense of like the age gender are we talking about uh the audience watching yeah okay so demographic right now is 20 uh, the majority of it so it's, this is 80 percent. it's 24 to 35 uh, uh years old um, 90% male. Yeah. Demographic is 80% UK. Yeah. 10% Middle East. Yeah. And nice. the rest of the 10% scattered across, uh, you know, different parts of the world. Nice. I'm with um, you. Okay. Yeah. And they're all into business. They're all into fintech. Well, yeah. not uh, business, business money, yeah. investing, yeah. that yeah. sort of thing. Cool. So now that I know that, what I would then do is I would say, what are all the possible types of brands who would love to reach into this audience? So, you have the service providers, right? So like people who need it for, I don't know, law firms want to tap into this. And then you have like the fintechs and then you have like the actual banks themselves who are trying to do all of that, right? And then what I would do is I would get a sheet of paper and I would say, are there at least 25 brands in this particular category? The reason why I say 25 brands in this category is if it's too small a number of brands in this category, then what happens is like you can't really build enough reference if it's only like, oh, six customers. Okay, one person, then I get a second and then a third and then that's it, yeah, right? Yeah. Done. If you think about the example that I gave you with um, music labels, think about this, right? Within Sony, there were like 20 sub-labels, but then each of them had like the UK entity and the US entity and the LATAM entity. So actually... Sony gives you like 60 potential customers. Warner gives you like 60 potential customers. And the other person gives you like, whatever, 50. So, you know, you're actually working with like hundreds of potential people and you can reference in. So I always would say, okay, are there 25 more? Uh, sorry, at least 25 brands in that target. And then I would come up with something called like my ICP. This is, I don't know if you know ICP. No. ICP. So the ICP is the ideal customer profile. All that says is not like, oh yeah, let's target fintech brands. It actually goes a bit deeper into like their psychographics. So it's like, okay, fintech brands who have raised at least 10 million in funding, who have somebody in the team who handles marketing and who are based in the UK. So now suddenly off that list, I can go, all right, these guys are the perfect people. So then you may have, you know, Monzo's, Starlin's, blah, blah, blah. But then here's the big thing. Go on. You wouldn't go for Monzo. You wouldn't go for Stalin. What you'd go is for the challenger brands. You would go for the people who want to be the next Monzo, who want to be the next Stalin, because those people are more open to doing like interesting, innovative things. To get their brand recognition. To get their brand recognition. Because now, you know, like the bigger companies aren't going to be like, oh yeah, let's try this thing. Because there's like no reason for them to. So you'd go on to the challenger brands. So that would almost be like the step-by-step -step thing that I would do. And then I'd go on LinkedIn and what I would do is I'd reach out to those those um challenger brands, the people who work in whatever, marketing or in social. And I wouldn't say, hey, I run CEO Casts. I'd love to talk about brand collaboration. I'd actually pitch like a one sentence idea to them. So I might be like, you know, this is what I do. We have these subscribers, et cetera. 
I have an idea for how for a format where entrepreneurs can talk about their money issues and I'd love for you to be a part of it. Instantly, I've like planted a seed in the head of marketing to be like, I can see how that works. Mm. So that's how, for example, early in fanbase, that's how it worked. It was like, we'd reach out to, I don't know, like some app or something. And then we'd be like, you know, um, we have a way in which you could get CPIs, cost per installs for less than two pounds. We'd love to show you. Oh, like, whoa, for real? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I take that meeting. And then off the back of that, that's pretty much all I would do for like the first three, six months. Just hammer on that core ICP and that core list with a very targeted message, which makes sense for them. Okay. So I have a few questions off the back of this. Yeah. You just said. First things first, you said make a list of, let's just say, 25 customers. No, um, make a list in an industry which has at least 25. At least at 25. At least 25. And if I couldn't have a list like that and I couldn't find a list, what from there what do you do from that point as in is it that you can't find 25 or you like practically cannot create a list okay no, let's just, <laughs> let's just say i actually okay i'm just trying to make a theoretical yeah, yeah. scenario i probably can find 25 customers but i'm saying for anyone else who's watching this right now and they can't find 25 customers because they can't think of 25 brands or companies that they can work with then that's not a good niche to go in okay Okay, so okay, that's, yeah. that's answered that one. Because you need to have at least like 25 because that gives you evidence that there's like enough people in this industry for it to be actually meaty for you. Yeah. And my second question off the back of this was, you said challenger brands, right? So the ones that are basically along the lines of trying to compete with your Monzo's or your Starlings and all that sort of stuff. But I'd counter argue that their budgets aren't as big as that. And if this is a business at the end of the day, you want to maximize your revenue they may not offer as much as a Monzo would. So let's just say Monzo was to offer £1,500 for every podcast. And this challenger brand was to say, oh, you know what? We haven't got as much money as them. Though we're trying to aspire to be them or be ahead of them, we can only offer you £500 at the moment. Cool. So there are two things I'd say to rebuttal that. Um, the first thing that I'll say is this is why your ICP is so important because do you remember in that example I said oh and they raised at least 10 million etc so one big part of like the ideal customer profile is to make sure that they actually are people with money yeah right because then that solves the problem uh, but the second thing is you actually don't want your first few customers to be the the highest paying ones so if someone, you know, gives you a grand, two grand, et cetera, that's fine because you're going to use that as case studies to then get the Monzos and the Stalins. And then the third thing, and I know that we're talking very much in like theoreticals, but like you would be absolutely shocked at how much money these brands have. You'd be shocked. Like they'll just drop 100 Gs because it's like, yeah, let's do a test. Mm. But you just have to package it in the right way. So it's all about packaging and positioning because the best way to think about it is like, they're going to spend the money somewhere. They might as well spend it with you. Yeah. And here's my follow-up question. Yeah. How do you actually determine what your value is and what you should be charging? Got it. So, so I'll, yeah. I'll just, I'm going to break that yeah, down just a little me, bit further. Me. So if this was your podcast right now, you're the owner of CEO Cost. How much do you charge Monzo to say, I'm going to put up uh, uh, ad integration into this podcast? How do you work out your value? So I would obviously calculate on number of subs and average views. Like how many subs? Uh, at the moment, coming up to 140K. 140K. And then on average, how many views? Um, So monthly, you're looking at 400K. But like on average, how many views per episode, if that makes sense? 
this is the thing. It's very guest dependent as well. Yeah. So this is why I always try to do monthly ones. But let's just say. Okay, 50K. let's say monthly, 400K, right? Yeah. So a very simple way to calculate this would be to do a ROI calculation. So you might say something like, well, if, if we have 400,000 views and we are assuming that there is X percent click-through rate. So let's say click-through rate, again, this is like not the answer. But let's assume to make numbers very simple, there's a 10% click-through rate, which is like way high. Mm-hmm. But 10% click-through rate, that's 40,000. And then you say, okay, maybe off that, 10% of those people will then be people who then like do some kind of, uh, who like take the Monzo offer or yeah. something. Who like. actually sign up to whatever yeah, it is you're yeah, offering. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Then that's 4,000. And then if you're like, well, Monzo's CPA to acquire a customer is like five pounds. So that therefore means that actually an integration is 4,000 times five, 20 grand. So like that's the kind of maths that you take through. And the great thing is the reason why you start off with the challenger brands first is because their CPAs are higher anyway. Mm. And so like you could actually charge higher for the same thing because their CPAs are higher. That's interesting. I need to start doing that properly. There you go. But this is the reason why I want to do this myself because obviously naturally you have agencies reaching out saying, hey, we can put this brand on here, but what do you think? And I'm sick or tired of the rates that they offer because it's just like, fucking, I'd rather do it for free. I'd rather not do it than have your shitty rates come at me. Do you know what I mean? Like, But I mean, yeah, yes. But again, I think it's packaging. Like if you package CEO cast are like the definitive voice of youth entrepreneurship in the UK suddenly you've mm. added a premium feel to a YouTube media property, right? So yeah. it's like positioning is a big part of it. Yeah. Do you think, this is interesting. You Okay, so you, you don't know too, too much about me, but just looking at it from the outside perspective, do you think CEO cost could ever be in a position where it's exitable? No. Why is that? Is that because my face is attached to it? Yes. And if my face wasn't attached to it and I slowly started breaking my face away from it, then what would you say? then I don't know where the value is because a big part of it and the episodes that I've watched are like you come across as someone who is very approachable, very charismatic. And then that then brings on or brings out the, the, the kind of je ne sais quoi of the guest. Mm. If it was someone else, then probably not one way you could almost, you know, circumvent that is that you, you have a new format on the show. So you have a second format, which is not dependent on you. But then again, you're still then like beholden to somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So, I mean, look, like it's very hard to sell media brands, which is why then people build products off the media brands, right? Um, We see it happen all the time now. I was literally having this conversation the other day with someone that all these big content creators and all that sort of stuff, they're making their own brands now and sub doing something else that goes alongside, but they're promoting it all heavily within their media. Yeah, because that's something that you can sell. But also, I mean, this, by the way, is turned into a coaching call, which typically <laughs> I charge a lot for. Well, it's okay. Consultation fees and that, yeah. Yeah, free game for you. Um, but also it's like, I would almost push back and say that you almost don't need to even be thinking about like selling what you have here. Yeah, no, no, I'm not yeah. thinking about selling it at all. It's just like, it's always kind of, I suppose, an ego stroke of the fact that you could sell it if you wanted yeah, to. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. I don't know. But I, the access that, yeah. the access that this gets you 
and the audience that this gets you, I would say is way more than any money that you currently could get. 100%. I agree with that. Okay, sweet. So then how did you grow it from there? Just uh, keep doing different things. So at the beginning, we focused. So at the beginning, in our first year, I think we made like 400 grand or so. And that was really because we solely focused on a certain subset. So I believe we focus on music labels then. And then the second year, then we focus on mobile apps and then we just kept growing and growing. So how we grew that was we had focus on a specific niche. And then once we've built enough like proof points, we ended up going to investors to raise money. So actually throughout the journey of fanbytes, we raised like 2 million from investors, but it was always when we had enough evidence. And then the third thing that we did in terms of like, how did we scale it from there? It's almost like, we were just really good at online marketing to feed people who were strangers and like feeding them into our world to then uh, buy our product. So I think those like three things of like focusing on a specific niche and then raising money only when we had actual proof points because that's so fucking important. Sorry. Uh, no, I swear all you like, bro. If, if it's comfort okay. passion, I like it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's so fucking important, right? <laughs> There's like so many entrepreneurs and first-time entrepreneurs I speak to, they're like, oh, I've got an idea. How do I get investors? It's like, show me what you got. Like, what's the story? What's the traction? Oh, no, it's just an idea. No one's going to take you serious. So we always raise money when we're in a position of strength. And then, of course, the third thing was like, we were very good at like attracting customers into our world by doing online marketing, speaking engagements, conferences, events, and all that stuff. So with the investors, at what point did you even realize you need investors? And, you know, a business always says, or someone always says they need investment, they need investment, they need investment. What for? What did you need? Because you said you raised 2 million for your first investment, right? No, so we raised 2 million throughout the duration okay. of Fanbytes. 2 million throughout the duration. What did you need the 2 million for? I don't know, vibes, isn't it? <laughs> For the vibes. Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> no. Um, so the first ever bit of money that we raised was 15K. Yeah. And here's the thing. We gave away 6% of the business. That's so, like, even thinking about that now, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that. Like, that was very, very bad deal. But that was, well, that was not a bad deal. It was just like a deal that we didn't understand at that point. Was this early doors though? Super early. Okay, yeah. Super, and it was actually for the previous business with Flop, but then we kept the same um, But, but you live term. and you learn because, you know, yeah, 6% of exactly. the time you're thinking, yo, 6% and you're getting 15 yeah. grand. Do it. <laughs> and the it's so annoying because I think back at it and like you had more money than 15 grand then, but for you, it was the fact that you got an investor on board. Mm-hmm. Um. So what did we need the money for? So I always raised money when we knew something was working and all we needed to do was just step on the accelerator. So in our second year, we passed a million a year in revenue. And then at that point, I was like, oh, we have something that's working. Let's go and raise a bit more money. So I think shortly after that, we raised like 300K. And then when we passed another milestone, I was like, oh, Let's now raise a bit more, half a million. And then let's now raise a bit more, 600K. So it always was when we had some kind of momentum going. The mistake I see a lot of entrepreneurs make, especially like first time, second time entrepreneurs, is that they try and raise money when they really don't have an advantage. They're just like begging. Mm. They're just like, oh, please, can you believe in me with this idea? Whereas what you want to do is be in a position of strength and then basically be like, well, this train is going to go anyway. So yeah. I'm actually doing you a favor yeah, yeah, yeah. by okay. getting involved in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
So you're either with us or you're not. Yeah. We don't need that. Like, kind of make it seem like we don't need your money. Yeah. We're going to go this way anyway, regardless. Yeah. It's about if you want to join us and you're going to, you know, eventually profit off of your investment. Exactly. You've mentioned something just then and throughout the podcast as well, right? Which is the failures that you had, you tried to start businesses because it wasn't meeting the market demands. Yeah. Now, there's one thing thinking about an idea in your head and there's one thing analysing what the actual business world needs or yeah. wants. So would you say that's the mistake that people are making? They're creating businesses off what they want as to what the end person wants? A hundred billion percent. Most ideas that I get pitched, which I just don't even take a look at, is because there is not enough evidence that they've solved a market demand. It's just like, I have a business which sells earrings to goths. Okay. Who told you that goths need another company that does this? And so rather than thinking about market demand, they think about what they want to see in the world. And that often is the reason why ideas don't even take off. Okay, so how can I? I'm gonna I'm gonna put myself in a situation. Yeah, hit me. How can I actually understand what the world needs, cool. what the world wants? So I think there are probably two ways to do that. The first way is to literally read reports by companies like McKinsey and Gartner and Bain, and these are all companies who every year they put out research reports on like what are trends going on in the world, mm-hmm. what is growing, what is in demand, and if you spend time reading and consuming those, you will find so many opportunities. My friend, actually, um, who should get on this, actually, is called Micaiah. He started a business which was like car dealership software and he sold it to a company called Upstart for 110 million. 110 million. Micaiah, you're coming on the podcast, mate. <laughs> yeah, he's coming on. He's coming on. Um, the way he actually figured out that this was actually something that people wanted was he literally read reports and trend reports and says, oh, like um the number of car dealerships that are going online is growing by 40 percent per year so well okay i'm going to build software to help them do that done so one is looking at research reports the other thing is literally looking at like google trends mm. and being like okay is this growing if it's not growing i should not build a business by it but if it's growing that means that there is demand because here's the thing man the best businesses they don't creates demand they meet demand that is the way that you build something easy if you're like oh my god people are banging down the door for this and i'm just here and i just open the door and i say come in but it will cost you this that's way better than how do i get people to come to my door Mm. here's a counter argument though wouldn't you say in today's day and age you can make some serious money purely off of marketing marketing right the reason why I say this is because I can open up TikTok, Instagram, whatever like that, and you'll see the most random products, most random businesses coming up, coming up all the time, right? And it's almost like you think to yourself, where is the demand for this? Who made the demand for a fidget spinner? But yeah, the person who's selling fidget spinners is a multi-millionaire. Yeah. So it's like, isn't it seizing marketing opportunities one of the main things nowadays? So I think that's a good counter argument. I would say that for most businesses which are of significant size, which can then be sold at some point, I think that they do have to meet some kind of market demand. Yeah. You can invent demand if you're basically happy to overspend on marketing. You're happy to just blitz marketing. Yeah. 
And then by spending to make something cool, then you can then build a business off it. The challenge with that is a lot of people don't have millions and millions and millions in funding mm. to basically make something cool, to like create demand and then afterwards capture that demand. Yeah. Those, those are not things I would advise for like first or second time entrepreneurs. Once you've made a bit of bank by just doing something basic and meet and demand, then you can be like, cool, I'm going to spend 5 million paying Kim Kardashian, Kylie Jenner, all those people to make my thing cool. And then once I've done that, I can then build a business of that. But if you're early stage, just meet demand. There's mm. no need to create demand. It's a better way to actually grow business longevity rather than yeah, just yeah. for the quick buck and then short term. Yeah. Which makes yeah. sense. Do you think everyone can and should be an entrepreneur? Because we hear it all the time, you know. I'm I'm not a guilty person of it, but this podcast at the end of the day... CEO and, <laughs> It literally inspires be people CEO. to become CEOs, entrepreneurs and all that sort of stuff. I say to people, get off of your ass, start your own business do this do that do you agree with that message so i don't think everyone can be an entrepreneur but i think everyone can be entrepreneurial mm -hmm. explain it entrepreneurial is understanding the skills needed to create value and to make money mm -hmm. being an entrepreneur as we said is about building systems and building a machine that you can then sell the overall machine so you can be entrepreneurial as a side hustle, build something that can give you some extra money. You can be entrepreneurial in your job to understand different ways to create value through your skills. But I do not think that everyone should be or can be an entrepreneur. Fairs, fairs. I want to throw it back to fanbats for a second, right? Up until the point where, what was the point where you realized it, it is basically the conversation of it being sold is in talks now? And how did that make you feel? So I actually think there were two points. In the third year of the business, we were about 50 people. Mm -hmm. And I think at that point, I went, oh, this business, regardless of the amount, is something that can actually be sold. Because I went, ah, we've built a system here, and we've built a process here, and we've built a brand name here, and we've built enough revenue here that actually, at the very least, we can sell this company for a few million. The second bit was when in 2021, when I remember getting three emails within six weeks, I got three emails from companies who wanted to partner up. By the way, for those listening, if you hear someone say the phrase partner up and it's coming from another company, just know that there's some bread to be made. Okay. <laughs> so when somebody says, you know, Hey, let's partner up. So, all right, cool. Why not buy you? Right. <laughs> um, um, so I think when I realized that, you know, three emails in six weeks, I thought, oh, there's a period of consolidation here. Because remember what I said earlier, that you want to pick a market where you know there's going to be some kind of merging and consolidation activity happening later on. In 2021, 2022, that was the time for the influencer community. Mm. And so during that period, what we ended up doing was we hired a bank and the bank basically ran our process. So for those listening, Running a, running a process basically means that the bank basically puts your docs together, says this is the financials, this is how the company looks, etc. And then they pitch you basically to other people as well as you. And then we ended up having, you know, uh, four people put in letters of intent. And then once they'd done that, and then we picked one person, then we went into exclusivity. And then after that, the company was bought. 
Okay, so how long did the whole process take from email to actually money landed in the account now? Well, so this is the funny thing. None of the three companies who we emailed did we even go with. Um, so I would say from when we began the process was in November and then we had sold the company by April. Here's a question that everyone wants to know, Tim. We've all been dying it for the whole podcast. How much did you sell the company for? <laughs> That's so funny. Um, the number we've got, I cannot... We've got the audience laughing in the background as well. <laughs> <laughs> the number I can't disclose, but, it's, but it was in the multiple eight figures. Um, the reason why... And some people have often asked me, like, why can't you share the number? And there are actually, like very legal reasons why. You can imagine NDA signing yeah. everything like that, yeah. And also like, often, if a company buys another company, right, that company they've bought is probably part of a whole group of other companies that they plan on buying. Yep. And so if a number goes out saying, you spend this on this company, then any future acquisition they do will be like, oh, well, we know that you spend this amount yeah. and we think, well, we're much. so like suddenly, Negotiation power goes. Exactly, right? Yeah. And so this is a reason why companies often don't say the public number or they say like undisclosed. Um, it's not because anybody wants to like, you know, hide or anything. It is because like legally it stops the acquirer from actually being able to negotiate better in the future. So it doesn't help anybody. Okay, look, we can't disclose a figure, but I've just got one question for you, Tim. What do you do with the money? <laughs> like now that, I mean, at that point of when it's sold, technically you're considered like retired. Yeah, yeah. You're not you're not working at that point. What do you do with multiple eight figures in your account? Okay, so the first thing I need to stress is that I don't have multiple eight figures, right? I know there's people out there who'd be like, oh yeah, but no. I had co-founders, we had investors, etc. But it was still it was and it's still more money than I knew what to do with, right? So what do I do with it? Um the first bit is you go, holy fuck, I can't believe this is my life. Right. Um, that is definitely the first thing. There is this there's this framework that I said about what happens after you make a lot of money. And I think that you basically go through four stages. The first stage is you go, Oh my god, I can't believe this is my life. You just like you wake up the next day and you're like, I cannot believe this is my life. The second stage is when you realize that your life has changed, but actually the overall world hasn't changed. So I remember about a week after we sold, I went to Sainsbury's and I was like, people, yo, yo, like, where's the choir? Come on, people sing my name, right? And then you realize like your life has changed, but the outside world just keeps continuing. And then the third one is where you basically go, okay, I need to now readjust to what was expensive before so things that are maybe like 10 grand perhaps now are like 100 pounds in the in the grand scheme of things and then the fourth one is where you basically go okay I've had this money and now I'm I need to make sure I don't rest on it because this was actually a very big thing for me which was I was like oh I have won the money game okay now what and I think that sense of understanding now what and trying to understand what you need to do next when you're not motivated by money is actually quite an emotional thing. And it sounds so much like, oh my God, rich people problems, because it is rich people problems, but it's still a sense of something that you need to get to the answer of. 
I can't imagine though like that adjustment of you know coming to to terms with how much money it is and and trying to readjust to what's expensive yeah could be a big thing because you know let's just say someone's got a thousand pound in their account yeah something that's a hundred pound could be expensive to them when you've got a million pound yeah, in the yeah, account yeah. ten grand is not yeah. that expensive to them so it always changes and it's like if you've got that much money and you're now buying 50 grand, 100 grand watches just for f- the fun of it, just because you like the look of it and you're not even thinking twice about the money. It's like, how long can your money actually last? Yeah. So the biggest thing is also not to get your meaning from these things, right? Often I get on my profile, people say, are you really rich? Because where's the Lamborghini? You wear a fossil watch. This watch is actually a sentimental watch. People are like, okay, Come on, like, show us some stuff, right? And I always go, firstly, you're a donor, and there's no way that I'm showing you anything. And also, it's like, wealth is often the very silent wealth. But most importantly, I actually think it's like, what meaning do you ascribe to things? So, for example, in my house now, there are very specific things that I basically bought and I had in the house. I was like, oh, my God, I've made it. One of them was a dishwasher. A dishwasher. Having a dishwasher, because growing up, I didn't have a dishwasher. And so having a dishwasher in my house was like, oh, I've made it, right? Having someone who now comes to like pick up my car and go to charge it, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that I'm able to pay someone like a hundred pound a month to do this. I'm like, like, this is so amazing to me. Or even things like, for example, that my house has like two floors. I'm just like, oh my God. Because again, I lived in a council estate. We had one floor, fourth floor, there was no lift. And so I think I ascribe meanings to those things rather than, you know, the new watch, the new car and all of those things. My dad's always taught me the same since the day I was born, pretty much. I can remember it off the top of my head. It's that empty barrels make the most noise. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, for people who don't understand that, it's people who are showing off money really haven't got so much to, to offer in the first place. But at the same time, it's like some people um, believe that when they live affluently and they live affluently, like, you know, whether it's having a nice watch on the wrist, driving a nice car or nice clothes, all that sort of stuff, they kind of attract wealth. They believe in manifesta- manifestation that way. Mm. So don't get me wrong. I live well. So, you know, Every flight is business class minimum. And that's just even to see my friends, right? First class flights and all those things. But I do those from a feeling of like, I want comfort for myself or I want to experience the best things for myself rather than like, I want to do things for other people. I mean, I get the whole manifestation thing and all of that, but like, you know, just don't go broke doing it, you know? <laughs> I just want to break something down there. Very interesting point. You yeah. said you don't go anything less than business class. Yeah. When's the first time you traveled on business class? Ah, oh, I actually have. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good one. You understand why I'll ask it in a, in a moment. Yeah, yeah. The first time I flew on business class was when I got paid to go and do a talk in China. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I can't believe this is my life. At what point in life is this? Is this this, uh, Entrepreneur Express, Fanbytes? What is it? This was during Fanbytes. This was in the year just before we sold. That was my first taste of business class. Okay, so before that, it was all economy? Economy, baby, or premium economy, maybe, you know? (laughs) Okay, so the reason why I ask this, right, is because there's this viral clip of Steve Harvey talking about this, Mm. saying that 
when you fly, next time you fly, pay that little bit extra to go on business class. Because mm. what it does, it unlocks something in your mind so that the next time you go on a plane and you're walking past those business class seats and you're going to your economy seat, you're going to think, nah, I'm not having it. I need to go back to that business class. And your mind works in a different way to make sure that you can afford it every single time to go in that business class. So my question off the back of that is, do you think traveling a business class or first class for that matter unlocked a different cell in your brain to say, this is something that I have to be able to afford to do for the rest of my life? So the biggest advantage of traveling business class was that it normalized success even more. Because I looked around business class and I thought, none of you guys have two heads. None of you guys are aliens. You guys are people just like me. You've just figured out a way to earn enough money to get into business class. And so every time now I go to business class, every time I go first class, whether it's for holidays, whether it's for just speaking engagements, I go, that trip in China, which normalized this for me, has made this even more normal now. Do you network in business class and stuff? You know how people Aggressively. Say, yeah. Especially Emirates and Singapore. Woo! Actually work. May I am I am I am trapping there. Um in, in, in um the South London trapper came out of the at Emirates. I'm trapping. Emirates Emirates business class, especially like I think the A380. Yeah, they've got they, the bar on there, yeah. The bar is a very like that bar has been very good to me. I have helped a lot of people from there and they've also helped me a lot from there. Um it's been very good. I think a lot of people travel on business class purely for the reason of networking, you know? Yeah. Because I've been on business class a few times. Not for the reason of networking. One time it was free from Emirates. Shout out Emirates for that. Oh, love. Hopefully they do another one. Shout Second time I paid for it because I was like, I just want to see what this is like. But what I noticed was that it's it's people go there with the intention. You can kind of suss it out with the intention of getting to know one another. So, mm. you know, people, they, they sit down and sleep, all that sort of stuff. And then they get up and they go to the bar. But I've noticed that people kind of like, not dress up for the bar, but they just yeah, get themselves yeah, yeah, together, yeah. go to the bathroom, fix themselves a bit. Because when they meet people like Tim there, it's like, how are you doing, Tim? How can we do business yeah, together and yeah, all that yeah. sort of stuff? Yeah. So I do think, do you, or do you agree with me? Or you, sorry, you can disagree or agree with me here, but I think that paying that £3,000 for an Emirates, Emirates business class ticket is worth it. So I think paying to be in certain rooms that would elevate your game is definitely worth it. Mm. And if part of it is Emirates Business Class, then yeah. Everyone get Emirates Business Class right Emirates now. Emirates Business Class, and Emirates, you if go. you're watching this podcast right They're now, remember going. us, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We need that. That's hilarious. <laughs> Tim, where do you go from here though, bro? Because like, obviously, look, you've acquired a lot of wealth, a lot of money over the years that you've been doing business. Is it, and you're still extremely young as well. So do you start another business with the intention of selling it or do you invest in other businesses? Do you ask people about their business so you can invest in theirs? And yeah, what yeah. do you do exactly? So this was actually part of a big soul searching mission I had to go through. So since we saw the company, I invested now in about like 17 companies now. And I realized that I don't get my kick from investing in companies. I thought I did. And this is something for a lot of entrepreneurs to really understand is, what is the thing that brings you joy? Because for so long, I thought once I hit the big number, then I'm done and, you know, see you guys later. And then that got really, really boring. So I think that just gives you a framework to like think about what do I choose to do with my life after I have got my first win? Because this is the thing, man. And 
this sounds very cliche, but I think that we said this off camera. If you do something over a long enough time period at a good enough level, you will be successful. Like it, it just, it's just impossible not to basically do something consistently improve every single time and then not be successful. Yeah, Alex Ramosi says this as well. Right, it's just like consistency, consistency, consistency. Like consistency beats intensity every single day, right? So to answer your question, it's not investing. That's not the thing that gives me my kicks at all. What does? I think it is building stuff to sell. And the sell thing is very important to me. And the reason why is because I see business as a game. And the way that you get to the end of the game, or at least the way that you get to the end of this level, is you sell the business. Now, what I'm not saying, and this is very important for you and your audience, what I'm not saying is that you are a failure if you haven't sold a business. That is not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that my benchmark for business success is selling a company. There are also several people, and I say this to so many entrepreneurs, so many entrepreneurs. I'm like, you should have your own marker for success. And if your marker is you started a business and it makes you a hundred grand a year in profit, and because of that, you are able to replace your job happy days do that right but i think it's very important to not try and basically live another person's life because i'll be very honest with you after we sold i had i had a very famous okay i'll say this i had a very big media vc hit me up and say hey we're big in the u.s but we're not big in the uk we would like for you to basically run our UK fund and for you to be the general partner of the fund. The fund was $120 million. And so basically at 27 years old, I could basically just be like, I now have a $120 million fund. And my whole job is then to invest in companies in the media space and in the, and in the e-com space. And for two months, I thought about that. And afterwards, I said no. The reason why was because actually before Fanbytes and before the sale, I thought my path was build companies and then sell it. And then afterwards, like invest because, you know, that is what people do. They mm -hmm. build their companies and then they made the money. Then they invest, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Until I had to be very honest with myself and go, that's not you, bro. Like you like the action. You like the operation. You like being in the thick of it. And so that was the reason why I said, okay, the thing which I'm going to enjoy doing is building more companies, selling them for more money, not because I need the money, but that's the way that we're able to get to the next level. Yeah, exactly. I feel like, yeah, as we said earlier in the podcast, you know, success has, is it, success is defined different ways in different points in time. And whereas you, whereas you sold your last company, Fanbytes, for, you know, eight figures, multiple eight figures, it's like the next one, it's got to be a challenge for you to sell yeah. it for more. Yeah. And it's that's where you get the kick from. That's where you get the drive. On the flip side, you do get the other person that sells the company and it's like, ah, oh, I finally got the freedom that I've wanted for, for ages. Now I can retire at 30 years old for the rest of my life. Yeah. I can, you know, this generational wealth, I can do whatever. But it does get to the point of, you know, Simon Skibby even said this as well. It's like, you know, you get bored. 
Yeah. You know, as an entrepreneur, as someone who seeks challenges all the time, for you to just sit back and relax and do nothing could probably drive you more insane than yeah. building a company in itself. Yeah, doing, you know, people think that doing nothing is easy, but actually doing nothing is hard because time is still going to exist. Mm. So you have to fill up the time with something, mm. you know? Have you found the next company that you want to start as and uh, and sell? So, because how long has it been since you sold Fan Bites now? I sixteen months or so. Sixteen months. So. But also, here's a very interesting thing. God, I intentionally after we sold, I said I am going to basically take at least the next year off. Okay. And the reason I said that was very simple. I realized that it is very, very, very rare in somebody's life where basically they have no commitments. I don't have a family or anything like that. No commitments. They have all the time and they have all the money to choose what they get to spend their time on. And so when I internalized that, I was like, yo, I'm going to take this opportunity to the max. So that's when, you know, I went to Serengeti, I went to Japan, I went to just like... Full traveling excursion. Traveling excursions, but also like experiencing things that I otherwise wouldn't have done, right? I like hang out with people that I otherwise wouldn't have done. I experienced things where I was like, oh, do I like this? Actually, no, I don't like this, blah, 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 right? So have I found the next company or have I decided the next company? So I'm going to... Okay, fine. I'm going to share an interesting... Uh, framework to decide what the next thing is going to be yeah and i think this framework is good for entrepreneurs who are all aspiring entrepreneurs number one it's not actually what you want to do is who you want to do it with i realized through fanboys that having the right co-founders and having people who would stick it through with you like my co-founders did it's actually made the journey way more enjoyable and way easier so I think I'm spending more time or I spend more time thinking about who I'm going to do this business with mm. rather than what I'm going to work on. Because if you have the right people, they can make any business really work. The second thing for me was I had to pick a business which has, again, some kind of consolidation going on. So the best way to do this, this is very, very tactical, is not only looking at the reports, etc., but there are very niche websites there's one called private equity wire mm -hmm. and what they do is all they do is talk about the latest private equity deals yeah and so what i tend to do is i will read up on that then i'll speak to my other friends who are also in private equity and i'll be like okay in the next like three to seven years where are you guys placing your bets where are you guys going to be spending money because by doing that what i'm then doing is i'm going all right cool we're in 2024 now in 2030 what are going to be the big changes that people would have placed their bets on? I'm going to make sure that I build something there, which eventually at that point... Yeah, can... aligns with that infrastructure. Exactly. And and that's a very tactical like way of entrepreneurship. And it's a very intentional way of entrepreneurship because I'll be perfectly honest. I don't believe in follow your passion. I think that's the biggest pile of bullshit ever. I do not believe in follow your passion. I don't believe in bringing your emotion into business. I look at where the opportunities are. I look at where my skills are. And then I bring different components together to capture that opportunity. When it comes to finding a business partner, your co-founder, do you look at the skills that they have that you don't have and combine them together? How does yeah. it work for you? So finding co-founders to me is one of the most important decisions that you have to make. 
And the most important thing is actually having what I call a co-founder contract. A co-founder contract is basically where each of you has a one pager Mm -hmm. as to what you actually want from the business. What do you want it to do for your lifestyle? Do you want it to be a big business? Do you want it to be a small business? Do you want a company that is 100 million? Do you want a company that's already like 10 people, 100 people? And once you have that page on what you really want the business to be a part of you, then you share it with other people and you say like, this is actually what I want from my business. Is this aligned with you? Mm. If it's aligned, happy days. If it's not aligned, not happy days. And part of that co-founder document can be things like, you know, I want to be able to own all the marketing and sales, but I want someone who's very good at finance and fundraising. Okay. If someone else's thing is then that, then tick box. If it's not, then no tick box. Mm. That's the way that I do it. Very intentional. Yeah. The reason why I asked this is because literally last night I had a, a meeting with someone for three hours. Yeah. Of, of potentially starting a new business together. Yeah. And I haven't got any other co-founders in any yeah. other businesses or anything else that I do. So it's like, okay, how can I actually analyze if you are, the right co-founder because this is something that I haven't done before. Yeah. So it's what do I actually do? Write that one pager. Yeah. I'm Almost be like, yo, all right. Here I am, Raheem. This is what I want. These are the conditions that I want the business to be like in three years. Cool. Here are also my weaknesses. Here are my strengths. And then get that other person to also do the same thing. And see if it aligns. And then see if it aligns. Because mm. I tell you what, Here's the maddest thing. Here's the maddest thing. Do you know what the biggest cause of business failure is? Go on. Co-founder breakup. Yeah. I would have thought so. It's not money. It's not market demand. It's co-founder breakup. People who are like, I can't stand this person anymore. I don't want to work with this person anymore. And then they just light the business on fire. Reminds me of a lot of stories I've had on the podcast as well, which is uh, interesting. So you have to be intentional. People... I know that I'm going on about this, but like, not a about it, bro. <laughs> like, people over romanticize co-founders when they need to realize that it's a business decision. Mm-hmm. It's not a personal decision because you and I are going into battle against other people. I need to know you've got my back and you need to know I've got your back. So because of that, you have to be intentional with who you choose to go to war with. Yeah. It can't just be, we kind of like each other. Yay. That shit never work. works. Yeah. Tim, I want to ask you this, yeah. It's it's kind of been recent that you've had like an online presence. Yes. Right? And uh, I want to ask why. Because in the mm. in, in the moments of you building up your companies, whether it be Entrepreneur Express, whether it be tutoring, whether it be fan bites, I like me being in the podcast space, I always see entrepreneur faces and all that sort of stuff. And I don't mean this in any disrespectful way, so please don't take it like that. I was not I, there, yeah. You, you wasn't there. That was very so intentional. People who come to the online presence, especially now that you've sold your business, kind of come for purpose and come with a message. Mm. So what is the message that you're trying to leave out with people? Why is it that you do these podcasts? Why is it that you're on Instagram, Twitter, yeah, 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 yeah. whatever the case is? What's the message you're trying to leave people? So on my Instagram bio... It says, sharing what I wish my 21-year-old self knew. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that's the line is because even though the numbers seem big and even though the headlines seem big, I think what I've done is actually very achievable. Note that I didn't build a business in some crazy deep tech space. I built a very simple service business, but then we introduced software into it. 
anyone could have done it, but we just did it and we executed. And there are certain transferable skills, principles, frameworks, mindsets that I think if the 21-year-old me knew would have got to that end goal way faster and with less stress. And so the purpose of the personal brand, the purpose of Instagram, the YouTube, getting on great podcasts like this, is like, well, I hope the 21-year-old me is watching this and going, okay, now I know the play, now I'm just going to run the play. Tim, I want you to picture this for me, yeah? Because, okay, so that's your message to your 21-year-old. What would the message be to the 13-year-old Tim? The who's, 13. Who's... who's understanding the world of business or he wants to know the world of business he's just come back from Ghana and he wants to be more involved in life and trying to make something trying to try, he wants to make the possible he wants to make the impossible possible what would be your message to him watching right now there's a very famous quote by Oscar Wilde and it is history doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes And I would say that to the 13-year-old me to say, actually, at the age that you are, you're not meant to have figured everything out by yourself. And history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So you should be looking and consuming information from people who have done it ahead of you. And actually, for the next three, four, five years, educate yourself and try a bunch of things knowing fully well they are not meant to be successful because when you eventually improve your skill of business when you are 19 20 or 25 all the work you've done during those years would improve your odds of you having an extraordinary outcome so reduce the pressure on yourself Realize that all the people on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube who are flashing their Lambos and doing all of that stuff, there were a bunch of failures before them. Realize that, give yourself time and just aim to get better every single day at the scale of business. I think that's a positive, good message to leave with the audience. There you go. Tim, I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast, bro. I appreciate you dropping hella hella knowledge and everything like that and if people want to find you where can they do so on my insta tim army i post some good gems in there about what not to do (laughs) about what not to do breaking the entrepreneurship cycle we love it we love it and if you enjoyed what you see today make sure you subscribe to the podcast give it a follow on apple podcast spotify all that good stuff follow us on instagram follow myself and all the links will be in the description for myself and from tim um any final notes go crush it Go crush it. There we are. I'll catch you lot <laughs> on the next episode. I'll see you across. Peace. If I have a platform to speak on, I'm going to tell the truth. If I tweet something, it's going to be the truth. And God will do the rest. And it is what it is. And the only reason these things exist are to help the people at home be valuable fans of mine.